0: If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you send and receive calls and texts from your new business phone number. That way, you can run your business from anywhere and respond to clients quickly with Grasshopper's mobile apps. Be professional, responsive, and efficient with Grasshopper. Get your business phone number today. Go to grasshopper.com films To get $20 off your first month Today on the NFL Films Podcast We'll take a dive into the timeline 91 Falcons A new documentary That covers perhaps the most fun team In NFL history With the producers of the film Greg Bacchetti, Anthony Smith The director Rob Gehring And the head coach from that team Jerry Glanville Paul Good morning Keith I have a question. How can I help you? What is The Timeline? The Timeline is a documentary series on the NFL Network. It is in its third season this year for the documentary fans of the NFL Network who know of Football Life which has been running 7 or 8 years now 7th season this go, year going on its 100th episode this season this fall the timeline came around kind of as a spin-off we would call it right in the in t- TV parlance in a sense in a sense there were some some episodes of the of t- uh, the Football Life series which started to take on um, i guess a, a conceptual Attack, for lack of a better term. There was, there was the Immaculate Reception. There were the 95 Browns, the 93 Oilers, shows that were the life, the football life, of a team or a topic almost or a moment.
1: There was a time where NFL Network, where the executives and programmers at the network said, we, we think we should focus football life strictly on biographies and we could create a new series
0: Based on topics and teams and moments, and that's where the timeline came from. The timeline really was derivative of that last word Keith used: moments, the moments that made history. We find ourselves even in a conversation. I think when we were brainstorming, we'd, we'd be saying, almost as fans, remember the moment when when Barry Sanders did this on Thanksgiving. Remember the moment when uh, you know Montana threw to Taylor and that phrase, the moment and delivering the moment, is something that um, we try and do in, in all of our stories, however long. Uh, form the duration is, so we said, well let's take the place where all the moments live, the timeline of NFL history and and let's use that as our universe for this new series. And that's how we got here. So with us today,
1: we have NFL Films producer Greg Bacchetti. Good morning, Greg.
2: How are you, Keith? Paul? Good. Thanks Great Great for be being here.
1: here. And we have um, we're in Mount Laurel at NFL Films, and we have with us from Los Angeles. Anthony Smith, the film's other producer. Hello, Anthony.
3: How's it going, guys? It's
1: great to have you with us, Anthony, has Anthony has collaborated... Now, NFL Films and NFL Network, just to um, go a little deeper, are two separate entities. Uh, NFL Network is part part of the, a big NFL media colossus that exists in Los Angeles as a physical entity. That includes NFL.com, all of the NFL digital properties, and then, of course, NFL Network. NFL Films is on the East Coast outside of Philadelphia and Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and uh, is a separate entity. But we are, uh, in a lot of ways, um, right-hand, left-hand sibling entities, and we collaborate on pretty much everything. But not always in, in in a situation like this. So Greg and, and Anthony, you two are partnered together on a project like this. And and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what this project is.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, so so the project, it's uh it's the Falcons, the ninety-one Falcons team, which everybody, you know, remembers, you know, for having some of the biggest characters in in NFL history. And Um, You know, Deion Sanders and Andre Rison and Brett Favre and Glanville and a lot of these characters, uh, a lot of the biggest characters in NFL history on one team. But the thing that's interesting about this team also is the fact that Glanville created this atmosphere where there were all these celebrities around as well. So you had guys like Travis Tritt and, and Vander Holyfield and James Brown and MC Hammer that are hanging out on the sideline as this team is having the greatest season in team history. Um, so it's, you know, as Greg has said, you know, and added, like, this is almost a murderous row of just characters uh, that, you know, that we were able to put into the film, uh, which is a gift and a curse in some ways. And, and, you know, Greg can kind of go into that, but it's, you know, you have all these great characters who are given great, great interviews and great sound, and you're trying to fit them all into into one film which is which is a challenge but it's a good challenge to have
2: Yeah, so I mean when we sit down and have great bites from Brett Favre Deion Sanders uh, I mean just the murderers right like we said Jerry Glanville it was you know sometimes they're just having a conversation with themselves on the avid you can just put these bites together with Deion talking about taking Brett shopping and Brett also talking about it and it just it worked so well and there's just so many great sections that worked um, with those guys
1: Let's listen to, to Dion and, and Brett Favre going shopping, and then we'll, we'll dive a little deeper into, into this moment in time and why it's worthy of, of a film.
4: In 1991, the Falcons had a fresh look, but their rookie quarterback appeared out of place.
5: Brett and I had played against each other in college. Dion was so awesome. Took me under his wing when others would just shun me. I remember taking Brett shopping. I, look, man, I can't let you come to work like that every day. You, you got to stop that. So I remember taking him downtown to the inner city, and
6: I did all the shots. What, what size man? Get that, yeah, you need that, you need that. Got him a whole new wardrobe. Took me and bought me clothes, which I never wore. It was way too good and stylish for me.
5: Brett used to roll around, stop, and throw a bullet, 40 yards on a dime. We was like, "Whoa.
1: It's one thing to have a film that stars Brett Favre and Deion Sanders and Jerry Glanville, and a litany of hip-hop and country music stars. But a film also has to have a narrative that makes it worthy of, of, of sitting down and spending an hour. What What is it about this moment in history, in Falcons history, in NFL history, that makes it worthy of a documentary?
3: The interesting thing, the thing that that excited me most about just kind of going back and looking at this team, um, you know, because I remember. I mean, I was ten, nine, ten, eleven years old when 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 this was kind of happening. So I remember MC Hammer was the biggest was the biggest deal ever, and it's funny. Dominique Wilkins says that people, young people, don't really understand how big MC Hammer was at the time. So you know, he's he's this guy. He's like, you know, MC Hammer was probably bigger than any hip hop star has ever been you know, ever. You know, this guy had commercials and cartoons and Pepsi Dills and toys and, and all this. So I remember MC Hammer. That's the thing I remember most about the team. You know, I remember MC Hammer and I remember Deion Sanders. But I also remember just kind of growing up in the South around this time as Atlanta being this place where African-Americans were going to thrive and achieve and and go after the American dream. It was becoming at this time, you know, it was being called the Black Mecca. It was almost like a Harlem uh, from the 1920s, that was happening in the 90s. So you had this city of Atlanta that I remember, just kind of growing up in Alabama, as being the place that everybody wanted to get. So you had this team uh, that that was coming of age at the same time. In many ways, the city was coming of age. I mean, the Braves were doing their thing, um, going, starting their streak of I think 14, 15 division championships in a row. Uh, the city of just had just been awarded the Olympics. So all of this was going on at the same time as you dig a little deeper you also had Atlanta hip hop that was starting to come to you know prominence around the same time late late 1990 early 1991 so it was this convergence of all these elements that was that was kind of happening at the same time um you know this american city looking to looking to get respect and looking to to become an international city with this football team that that had not had much success that was also looking to get respect and looking to get prominence. Uh, So uh, it was a very interesting convergence of a lot of different things going on at the same time. There's a
0: kind of a micro genre here. um, I mean, not just here, but that we've done over the years, these city shows, we call them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think all of us at this table, I know Anthony has, um, we've all worked on shows that, that sometimes explicitly and other times implicitly sort of allow for a city, a location, to almost become a character. Even within the Timeline series, uh, Anthony's worked on, was a co-producer of the Tale of Two Cities film in the uh, premiere season of the Timeline documentary series, which was a story of San Francisco and Dallas and their unique relationship uh, in history. And Greg, last year, worked on a film called Night of the Living Steelers, which was about filmmaker George Romero, the godfather of the zombie genre, and his relationship to the Steelers in the 70s. But as all 70s Steelers films are, it, it... was a, uh, had a strong thread of the time and the town and the team kind of all interwoven. I wonder if you guys, and Greg, I'll throw it to you first, could talk about putting together a city show. How do you go into the field and capture the place, and then how do you bring it to life on screen, and kind of what... Uh, what, what asset does that give you as a filmmaker to have kind of a vibrant place at your disposal when you're, when you're putting a piece together?
2: Oh, sure. Atlanta's very scenic. And when we went down there, we knew uh, that we were bringing this social angle to it. So we shot all the historically black colleges down there. We shot the Martin Luther King sites and everything, and and visually they just look stunning um, in the film. And and just, I know Anthony went down there and shot those uh, with Rob, who we'll talk to later, but putting them together as, you know, editing here, it was just, I mean, it's one of the most scenic cities that that we have in America, and it was just great to shoot. And, you know, doing Pittsburgh last year is the same thing. It's it's one of those cities that it's just the skylines and everything, putting them together editorially is great.
1: One of the most fun things is when you're interviewing famous people, players, people who have been in a city and have had their own passions ignited by a place. make It, it brings these stories to life in a way that's really exciting as a storyteller. And, and you can hear it right away in this film. Um, here, here are some of the many luminaries who appear in the film talking about Atlanta, um, starting with Dion Sanders. Um, you'll hear from Dion, Jermaine Dupree, T.I., and, and Big Boy in this clip.
5: I went to Atlanta, and when I got there, I was amazed. The reason being, I saw black folks in prominent places. I had never seen black doctors and lawyers, political figures, and it blew my mind. And driving nice cars and one getting pulled over for nonsense. So I had in my mind, from way back when, this is where I want to be. In
4: 1991... Atlanta was a place where African Americans could express themselves, unlike anywhere else in America. There was no more expressive art form than hip hop, which was just beginning to emerge on a national level, but already had deep roots in the dirty South. You could go all around the city and
7: see talent. Arrested Development was putting they self together. Boys the men here in Atlanta. I put out Crisscross. At that same time, I had TLC. All of this happened in 91.
5: That wave set the stage for the next wave, which was Outcast, Goody Mob. When we started, it wasn't cool to be from Atlanta. So, our thing, we had a, a strong sense of Southern pride. When you think about the rise of the South in terms of hip hop but in terms of pop culture, uh, Atlanta is the heartbeat, the benchmark, the bellwether. The burgeoning hip hop scene in Atlanta, tremendous star appeal, all of that coming together was a real burst of excitement.
1: That was sociology professor Michael Eric Dyson talking about Atlanta's hunger for respect. And guys, I'm just curious, did you go in knowing that you wanted to tell this story about Atlanta in this moment, or is that something that rose up through the process?
2: Uh, definitely throughout the process. Um, like I said, Anthony brought in this angle that we hadn't really you know gone into before with the Black Mecca. And it's something I learned a couple of years ago when I was doing a documentary on uh, Jerome Bettis with Jerome, uh, you know obviously has a lot of Pittsburgh ties being with the Steelers and from Detroit. But I was surprised how many interviews were in Atlanta, how many ex players, live down there. Jerome lives down there. Cordell Stewart, I believe Heinz Ward. We kept having to go back to Atlanta. So you really do see that these that's where these uh, ex-athletes want to live. They want to be a part of what's going on down there.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, to, to Greg's point, um, like I didn't know that it would be to the extent that it was um, in terms of Atlanta, you know, I knew Atlanta, and again, as a kid, I knew Atlanta was was a cool place, and it was a place to be, and it was a place that was kind of emerging. But I didn't know to the extent that these guys were looking for respect; they were looking for for respect on a on a national stage and an international stage. In, in, in many ways, you know, with the Olympics, um, and they wanted to be thought of as an international city, and that was something that that kept coming up. Um, you know, not just from the hip hop artists, but from the from the athletes, from the, you know, from Mayor Andrew Young, Mayor, Mayor Kasim Reed also said that was, you know, Atlanta was was looking for respect. I mean, there's a there's a whole angle that didn't get put into the film uh, that, you know, guys, I mean, it didn't matter if it was a rapper or athlete or whoever. I think that I did five interviews in a row where everybody was talking about the fact that there's more production, film production in Atlanta than anywhere else in the world. You know, they're like more than Hollywood, more than India, and everybody kept saying that. And, but in some ways they were still kind of beating that drum of, you know, almost like we made it now. Like we are, like we have accomplished what what we set out to accomplish in the late 80s and early 90s. But that was something that everybody made sure that me and Rob and the crew knew that there was more, more business happening in Atlanta than anywhere in the world.
0: When we talk about the rise of the profile of the city of Atlanta, uh, as this film does, and we talk about the goal of the timeline to talk about significant moments in history, uh, for me, and I think it's pretty clear in the film, the moment uh, that reflects that rise in our story here in this, in this one-hour doc is the uh, arrival of Deion Sanders. He had the high-profile, the sort of the look before he even made it. He was, he was splashy before he got to the NFL and had the NFL stage to stand on. And one of the things I love in the show is um, – Obviously, the the role of Dion as it comes out on the screen and and Anthony, you conducted that interview, and i uh, I wanted you to kind of describe your approach to it because I think the challenge for me for, with a guy like Dion would be how do I capture the natural energy and enthusiasm that this guy has and how he tells stories, but also cajole him to be introspective and reflective, which you clearly did because he he goes into not just the fun storytelling anecdotes but he's he's also um, reflecting on on the the experience he had kind of emotionally with his teammates and with his this place
3: yeah I mean I think that uh just our approach kind of going in is I wanted Dion to to fully buy in in, in regards to what we're doing and fully buy into the story that we are telling um, because I mean as as all of us know like Dion Dion's not gonna do every project. So it has to be a project that Dion is, you know, is you know, invested in and is something that, you know, that he believes is a is a story worth telling. So I think the the biggest part on on, on my end was just getting him excited and making sure that he knew the story that we were trying to tell going in and once you know once we were able to convey that to him and let him know the different different angles we were taking with the story and and letting him know some of the people you know outside of outside of the football team that we were looking to make a part of this um, he had complete buy in so once he got in the seat I mean Dion was Dion was money I mean Dion was great it was more work on the on the front end than actually in the interview uh, kind of let him know the questions that that were going to be coming his way and the topics that we we're going to be talking about and uh and he's a pro he was he was ready to go
0: was there anything you learned that you weren't expecting
3: um you know what i mean i i was i was surprised the way i mean specifically with rising because i'd heard him talk about brett farr before a couple of years ago we did a we did a thing where we sat Brett and Dion down, and they talked for an hour, and just kind of talked about you know being in Atlanta and college, and just being friends for for all these years. Um, so that was something that that wasn't as surprising to me than maybe to, to some other some some of our viewers. But him talking about Rising and their friendship and brotherhood and. And the way that the way that I don 't want to say it ended because I mean they're still you know they're still on speaking terms, but it 's obvious that things aren 't the way that they were, and both of them were open and honest about that um so i was I was pleasantly surprised that he went there um in terms of his relationship with with rising
1: i I say the thing I learned about Dion in this film guys is is that there's a continuing and there's an ongoing debate about the Jerry
2: curl. <laughs> And that's the funny thing about it is we, we, a lot of these interviews and the questions we had to get together at once. So we sent down a whole batch down. And it's funny how we didn't have questions about the Jerry Curl in there, yet everyone started talking about it and what they thought about it. And yeah, I learned it was dry. Who knew? Well, I think there's debate that's about what he that. Says. Yeah. Dion says, it's, says
1: it's dry, but Dominique Willi- Wilkins, among many others, claims otherwise. Let's, let's, let's listen to the debate about the Jerry Curl.
6: Primetime came out, he had the Mr. T starter kit, all the jewelry on. I don't know how he walked with all those chains on. I don't believe they were real. They just had to be changed, painted gold. I don't know if I've ever seen his Jerry curl out of place. Curl was
5: fresh, just came from the salon. So when I turned, that thing just turned with me, you know what I'm saying? The wettest Jerry curl i ever seen, the most moisturized curl in history, ever. You know, the curl looked wet, but it was dry. It was wet, <laughs> real wet. <laughs>
3: The debate will continue.
1: Yeah, what do you think? I mean, is there any evidence that that proves it one way or the other that you found on your extensive I, research,
3: guys? I think it, I think it was wet. I think he had activator in that thing, like coming to America. But uh, but he says otherwise. So,
1: who are we to argue with Dion?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this film is, as you guys said, it's an embarrassment of riches and characters. We're going to talk to to. One of them, the coach of this circus, Jerry Glanville, a little bit later. But the other character who emerges in this story and is almost running parallel with his own story is Brett Favre, the unlikeliest character in the story. And, you know, the backstory is Brett Favre gets drafted by the Falcons. You know, this is this little known fact in history that Brett Favre's career starts this season in 91 in Atlanta. And it's an odd story. He's an odd fit from the very start. Let we'll we'll have a conversation about this. Let's let's hear a little bit about how Brett saw things when he arrived.
6: I was pretty confident. I also was extremely naive. 21 years old,
4: you think you got it all figured out.
6: Just never see snow at home, South Mississippi.
4: There is a never-ending debate over who wanted to trade Brett Favre away from Atlanta and who wanted to select him in the first place.
6: I wanted to draft him. Jerry, what do you think? Jerry says, you know, I don't really like him. I like this Browning Nagel guy. Geez, <laughs> I'm about ready to choke. I read the story. I never wanted to draft him all that. That's all fictitious. What my gut tells me is that Ken Harrock wanted to draft me and Jerry did not. First time I set foot on the Falcons facility, Glanville looks at me and he says, Mississippi, what school are you from? I said, Southern Miss. And he says, hmm, we drafted the wrong guy. We wanted a guy from Mississippi State. He didn't know I joked with all the players that way. There was a lot of that that went on, and you know, overcoming that was probably harder than overcoming the game itself.
7: Mississippi, you're not gonna play tonight? I tell you what, we got to have two plane wrecks and four quarterbacks go down and you're it.
6: I was like, you know, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know when, but I will prove this guy wrong.
1: So that was Jerry Glanville, of course, and Brett Favre and the former general manager of the 91 Falcons, Ken Herrock. And that's a dispute that has been litigated over many years between Herrock and, and Glanville. They each have their side of the story. And how did you guys uh, attack both that story and fitting Brett into the larger narrative um, of Atlanta and the '91 Falcons and Dion and everything else.
2: That was our trouble with this film: is we have so many leading men, so many main stars, and weaving those storylines together was the main problem of this film. And I think the way that we did it is the quarterback storyline becomes very important earlier in the season when their starter, Chris Miller, is kind of throwing interceptions, and Brett Favre is still on the bench. So you kind of know that this legend is sitting on the bench on a team that really needs a quarterback. So putting those together and kind of weaving Favre throughout, was it was challenging.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, That you have a character like Brett Favre on a team like this, you have to find a way to fit him in. So so it's a problem, it's a challenge, but again, it's a good problem to have. So it was just putting our collective heads together, you know, with each other, with with the showrunners, and just trying to figure out the best way to not only Brett Favre, but to get all the threads in. But I mean, I think that we figured out a way to, in many ways, introduce him early, you know, kinda of come back to him, you know, in the in the middle blocks and then obviously tie up everything at the end with him, you know, ending up getting traded from Atlanta and having success, you know, that we all know that he had in Green Bay. Um and one thing I do wanna add, uh like in many of these clips that you guys have played, you've heard the voice of Ken Harrock, who is I mean, again, like he's not a name that's as known as some of the other guys in in the film, but this guy's another character and in, do himself who, again, we, we just had guys that gave great interviews, and he gave one of the best interviews that we had. Um, and he was great on Favre and having Glanville talk uh, on Favre to the extent that he did, but also having Favre in many ways open up in ways that I hadn't really seen him open up about this particular year. Uh, because I've seen Brett Favre talk about everything else, but I hadn't really seen him talk about about this year in Atlanta to the extent that he did, which was which was great to have as well.
2: Sure. And and with Ken Harrock and Jerry Glanville, you got the impression that they've been asked this question, like you said, this is, debate is going on for years. They have their stories so ready. Who, and who to, screwed this up? Exactly. <laughs> and, to inter, and to finally be able to intercut between them talking about it, you know, Ken Harrock giving his story about how it happened, Jerry giving his, and all the details that they had, uh, it was very interesting.
0: I think it's one of the fun things about doing these deep dives is we talk about Brett Favre as the legend that's sitting on the bench, but when you dive into the story, you realize he wasn't a legend yet. In fact, Brett is very candid about how his approach was probably less than professional at that at that moment. We get back to this idea of a moment. When you explore a moment, you see Brett Favre in 91 obviously wasn't what he would become, and maybe only by being traded, did he sort of blossom into the star of the legend that that would you know? Some guys are sort of a perfect fit from jump, and other guys need to have that that course correction. Well, you see how close to Brett really came to washing out, and 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 really
1: what a mess he was in 1991. He was not ready to play in the NFL.
4: Brett Favre was drafted as the backup to starter Chris Miller, but then Atlanta traded for veteran Billy Joe Tolliver and Favre slipped to third string. You're drafted in the second round. That in itself tells you, you know, you're
6: kind of the heir apparent, and then they trade for a guy and put him right in front of you, never give you an explanation, which, they, you know, as I look back, I, I didn't deserve one. And I'm in a situation here where I've got to wait my turn, and I really don't mind. I'd like to play, but, you know, I understand my role right now. I'm only 21 years old, and hopefully I've got a bright future here. Every week, Mr. Herock, I need to talk to you. Okay, what do you need? What do you want, Brett? I'm better than these guys, and I ain't getting the opportunity, I ain't getting the chance. Brett, when you get your opportunity, get your chance, show them what you can do. Well, he wasn't showing them. He's going to practice, uh, sometimes half drunk, uh, not knowing the plays, overweight. I did pretty good. I, was, I could probably put on about 25 pounds that year. I was 255 pounds. I think I went from a 36 to a 40 pant. That was back in my beer drinking days. I knew we had a problem because he couldn't come in and stay awake in a meeting.
7: Probably lost my patience with him when we took a team pitcher and he didn't show up for the team pitcher.
6: So if you look at the team pitcher from that year, you think, I think Forrest pulling our leg. He never played for the Falcons. So to think that I had a wonderful career after the start is pretty remarkable.
1: The great what if
0: of the '91 Falcons. <laughs> Favre's like the hero with a hundred origin stories. <laughs> Every step of his story from the from the home movies with Big Irv on the floor through right. through the ups and, <laughs> ups and downs at Southern Miss to the '91 Falcon season to the uh, too many rocket balls in Green Bay. I mean, he he is yeah. to Minnesota. I mean, yeah, it just doesn't end. So all these characters, as we've been talking about, are are the blessing and the curse. How do you capture them? How do you harness what is already there in the archival footage and how do you put it all together and give the film a look and a feel that helps that fun sizzle but helps the story deliver. We're going to bring in, at this point, Rob Gehring, who was the director of the, of the film and helped to solve that problem along with Anthony and Greg.
8: Hi, Rob. Hi, Keith. How's it going, man? Good. Welcome to... And Paul and Greg and Anthony. Hello, guys. Welcome
1: to the NFL Films Podcast. Uh, So, the 91 Falcons. We've been talking about the story of the film, but we'd like to turn the conversation a little bit more to the look and the uh, style of the film.
0: And just a little background, a little more as something we talked about at the top of the show with how this sort of dream team, this Voltron, was put together for the production of this show. We had the bi-coastal producers, uh, Anthony out in L.A. and Greg here in Mount Laurel. Uh, who and we say producers. It's sort of a general term, but they're involved in the pre-production, the direction in the field, the editing, and the post-process. But on this show, Rob Garing was involved in the direction, uh, and I don't want to limit it, Rob. I don't want to let you kind of get into the details, but more on the front end of, of the production process, the the pre-production, the design of the look of the show, uh, the capture in the field, and then handing off the footage to these guys to edit it. It's a it's a, it's not it's not unprecedented but it's unusual in our in our process so we wanted to kind of explain it because it'll help shed some light on what Rob's role was uh in terms of the whole collaboration so did I did I did I describe that accurately would you say
8: Rob Yeah absolutely I mean I think that's I, and I think it was a great process for this particular film I, I I'm really glad that it worked out the way that it did um, I think you know when we went into this. The very first thing that we did once this got greenlit was I went back and watched the two legit to quit video, and I just wanted to get a feel for what that looked like, what that that environment looked like, um, and it was a lot of uh, spotlights on a black stage, uh, blacked out stage, and it was um, you know it was just very like bright lights um shining kind of on that moment and that that in, that informed everything after that in terms of how we tried to capture interviews how we tried to capture content um yeah that was that was kind of the first thing we did it's a
0: great description it is it is a a failing of this audio format that you won't be able to see that until you watch the film but it is a it has a distinct look i would say that was a success uh what your goal was in terms of achieving it now I, I want you to go a little further again when we talk about these teams you almost have your own team when you put something like this together. And in addition to working with Greg and Anthony, but when it comes to the director interacting with the director of photography and the colorist, the guys who do the, the color grading on the footage, uh, that's a process that unfolds throughout from beginning to end. But you guys do a lot of work even before cameras roll. And I want you to talk about that part of it before you ever go in the field. How do you collaborate with those more visual uh, artists in terms of the process, and and how do you guys converse and, and put, put
8: your plan together? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We um, There's a lot of conversations that happen with the director of photography specifically. Um, there's a lot of little things that you can do that sometimes are very subtle uh, to give give it that unique look. Uh, the colors is, is critically important when you have a look like this, because we netted out at wanting to have everything be focused on the subject, so that you weren't distracted by Uh, Background, you weren't distracted by anything, you were just hearing the story, and it was under the same kind of spotlight that they were under at the time. Um, And so you know, that's not an easy thing to achieve. You think, you know, a little a black box set up, so to speak, uh, where all you see is the subject is a really easy thing to light. It's actually a very difficult thing to light um, and to be able to repeat. And we knew uh, in working with Anthony and Greg beforehand, we knew we wanted to talk to a lot of people, um, probably more people than we might normally for a film like this, um, because the, 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 the ripples of this were so far reaching, especially afterward in the Atlanta community. And so we wanted that that set up to be repeatable. And so talking to the, to the colorists about how we could do that and give them enough, but if there were errors in that, they could save it, so to speak, or they could kind of unify it, more importantly, um, that was a huge part of it and feeling kind of comfortable where we were in that spectrum. What is a colorist? for people who
0: don't know. I mean just 30 seconds. Yeah. Well, I mean we know what a director of photography is. He's in charge of the yeah. sort of the shooting. You're mm-hmm. the director. What is the what does the colorist do?
8: I mean the colorist is taking all the the uh the information that you're giving them in the image and trying to squeeze and manipulate everything they can to give that image a specific look. It's everything from contrast to to color hues to uh to you know how many nits there are in the brightness of the image. I mean there's a we could geek out, geek out on it for a while, but you know the color's job is to really squeeze and manipulate everything out of very base information um, to make that image sing. So, how you mentioned the spotlights that you saw
1: in the in the Too Legit video, how did you and, and Paul mentioned the limitations of this format? We're not going to be able to see it, but can you describe what you what your objective was in bringing that look, translating it into this film, and and how you executed it?
8: Yeah, I um, you know, some of it was just co- coincidence um uh, at the time we started talking about this film, um uh, we were shooting a lot or I was shooting a lot uh, on some other on another project with uh, anamorphic lenses. What does that mean? Uh anamorphic lenses have a different aspect ratio, so when your, your widescreen television or HD television is um 16 by 9 aspect ratio. It's a it's a fairly standard widescreen image compared to, you know, 10 15 years ago when we started working here. Um it was an SD image that was much more of a square. It was a four by three. Um, and so the aspect ratio of an anamorphic that an anamorphic lens allows you to shoot with is even wider than that. So if you took what you see on an HD television and you letterbox it, you put black bars at the top and bottom of it, that's the aspect ratio that you're mostly getting, um, out of that kind of lens. And so, um, it was partially the aspect ratio, but it was also, th- those anamorphic lenses will allow you to get all kinds of texture out of it, right? And so one of the things that we, that, that kept sticking in my, ma- in my mind was the dirty south, right? That was the genre of, of music that, that evolved from this. And everything about Atlanta was just kind of imperfect, but beautiful, and perfectly imperfect. And it was, it was dirty and raw and it had texture. And so not only did we take lenses that already have those characteristics, but we went and got these, these really old lenses, these Kawa lenses that were built in the 1970s um, and have since kind of been Rehouse, but they still have all the the basic tenets of the lenses and uh, the original lenses, and those are dirty. I mean, they're they're flawed. They have elements to them that are that are imperfect, and we leaned into that. We wanted those images to have flares and streaks, and and there to be bloom around the light. So, you know, so much today is done to take that out of lenses. Um, we leaned into the opposite. And so we wanted to kind of embrace that as we, as we were shooting the interviews. This man paints with light.
1: <laughs> if you are an
8: entrepreneur,
1: a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone while keeping your business and personal lives separate. Choose from our huge inventory of local, toll-free, or vanity, toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're in an office, in your car, or out shopping for the holidays, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps help you stay connected to your customers. Not to mention, you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number, set up multiple extensions for everyone on your team, get your voicemails transcribed and emailed to you, work from anywhere with call forwarding make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app, and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshopper offers an easy and instant setup and 24-7 customer support, all without any long-term contracts. Be professional, responsive, and efficient with Grasshopper. Get your business phone number today. Go to grasshopper.com films to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com slash films. There's one thing we haven't talked about uh, yet, and, and that's football. One of my favorite parts of this film is this little football detail about the 91 Falcons. Get the ball to prime.
4: With Mr. You Can't Touch This on the sidelines, the Falcons started playing keep away. A strategy they called Get the Ball to Prime. Aru was the lateral.
5: Kiss him goodbye, baby! Dion scored the touchdown!
7: If you picked the ball off of practice, you had to pitch it.
3: It looks like they practice after they get the interception. Try to get a return for a touchdown.
4: Coach is like, yo, pitch it. Like If you didn't pitch it, he in the meeting room like, why aren't you pitching? The guy asking you to pitch in the ball. We trying to go to the end zone. The
5: Falcons live on the edge. And sometimes it's the edge of disaster. It was just an understanding. You get the pick if I'm anywhere close. Get the turn ball to 21. When you get 21, you win. In blackjack or roulette, you you win.
1: That that is like a that is like a perfect football representation. Of the 91 Falcons. It's a little bit of a clash of style and substance and everything ultimately revolving around and leading to Deion
0: Sanders. Did any of you guys get the sense that any of these guys regretted the fun approach that they took to football? When you're doing these interviews, did that, did that exude or did that eke out that obviously they had fun? That's clear. But I mean, they didn't win a championship. So do they look back now, later in life, having their careers be over and say, man, I wish we'd I wish we danced a little less?
2: One subject, uh, Jamie Dukes, kind of went into that. He went into the criticism they received. And when they lost to a team like Washington, coached by Joe Gibbs, they do everything straight laced. They really went into, you know, how the the contrasting those two teams and, you know, the team that did things straight laced won and the team that was dancing didn't. And there's the, the Jamie was the one that really went into that for sure.
3: Yeah, it seemed like everybody else does seem to <laughs> seem to enjoy it, and uh, I mean, look back fondly at that at that particular time. And um, you know, oh, at the at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of the guys spoke to the fact that the team was cheap, and the team or the team at the time didn't spend the money to keep some of their some of their big free agents, and you know, made some questionable personnel decisions. Um, and and a lot of the guys think that that was the reason they didn't have further success versus versus the style.
1: I just like the pitching.
4: <laughs> the
1: lateral thing is... Well, anytime you can distill... What, it's great to talk about anamorphic lenses. It's great to shoot <laughs> things the way they were shot in the film is beautiful. The interviews in this film, especially when you have to do interviews in a variety of different locations with a variety of different subjects, to find a technique and to make it work the way it does in this film is really, really hard to do. But the other thing we have to do in all of our films... Is we have to make the football work. We have to find something in the football that helps tell the story of this team or this 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 player that signifies who they were as as people and as football players and and distills it down to the essence. And I love that you guys found the one football element that s- like sums up this team to a T, even in their greatest moment their playoff win that that lateral yeah. comes up in the last play of the game
0: well, i think my only criticism of of the 91 falcons approach was that they changed the uniforms and maybe it's just nostalgia <laughs> but i really love <laughs> i love the red and blacks from being my first exposure to football that's what they were wearing this is the team that, that went to all black Uh, you know, maybe just another debate
8: that will historically be connected (laughs) to this team. You will be on the wrong side of that debate with just about anybody. (laughs) You think so? Yeah.
1: But you know, you know who we can ask about the change to all blacks,
0: Paul? The man himself who executed that change. The man in black, Jerry Glanville.
1: Coach Glanville, welcome to the NFL Films Podcast. I'm Keith Cosgrove with Paul Camerata. We've been producers at NFL Films for many years. We've probably both interviewed you for some film we did 15 years ago. And we're with Greg Bicchetti, the producer of the great new film, uh, The Timeline 91 Falcons, which you are one of the stars of. So we would love to talk to you about the film and about that moment in your life for a few minutes today.
7: Well, you, you happen to pick a moment which was probably as good as it gets. Uh, the 1991 Falcons were uh, not normal in any way. they were a special, special group.
1: Was that the best season of your career? This was, this was a moment in Atlanta in a city that was rising. There was a cultural element to it. There was Dion and everything else.
7: The last year in Fulton County, and you have never—they've never, never will probably get crowds like that because we didn't sell corporate tickets. We didn't sell tickets by the hundreds. All of our tickets were sold by twos and fours, and it was an unbelievable people that sat in the end zone that waited to see those those players come out. And what what what's what's you have to remind people a guy today. Uh, I was in an Under Armour store and he. He comes up. and goes. Oh my gosh! I was there when you had the 91 Falcons. It happens every day. But what a lot of people forget, we started off 0 and 2, uh, and that that has sort of disappeared. Uh, we were waiting to click offensively. We were real good on defense when we started off. Uh, you know, not giving up very very many touchdowns at all. In fact, we uh, in the bye week in the bye week we weren't even a winning team. We were two and three. But the defense was giving up a touchdown a game, and we were waiting for this offense to come together because uh, uh, it takes a time, and and we we had new players. We drafted uh, uh, Pritchard. I had to have Pritchard. Nobody knew why I had to have Pritchard. Why did I pass on Favre to the next round? Because I had to have another slot back. And people probably forget Pritchard led all rookies in receiving that year. We made a trade for Drew Hill. And of course we had Michael Haynes was there and uh, we made the trade for Andre Ryzen. Uh, and, And so we're two and three at the bye week playing good defense and nothing happening. And then when we came back from the bye week, we beat the 49ers. And at that time we went on, we beat them on the West coast too. At that time, we beat the 49ers twice, which nobody was doing. That's, that's, believe it or not, so long ago, the 49ers could actually play then. They were pretty good Like <laughs> today. Uh they, kind of hard to watch today. Uh, so after 10 games, this this team that everybody still talks about, we're 5-5. Five and five. We're a 5-5 five five team uh, and, and wondering what's going to happen. And then we take off and we win five in a row and and the offense becomes the strength of the team, where the defense was the strength of the team. Uh, at one point, the the uh, uh, the offense becomes just uh, very, very, very powerful.
1: Coach, your memory of this team is incredible. You...
7: Well, you don't forget teams like that. Yeah, you yeah. don't forget plays. And this team loved the play. The attitude and practice, people don't realize Deion Sanders. You, know, you see Deion Sanders play, you see him. Run back kicks, you see him intercept the pass. Let me tell you about Deion Sanders, and nobody says this in practice. He never took a play off, not one. In pro football, you have to be the other team. So when you're playing the Vikings, after when the offense is working, you're, you don't have scout teams, not college football. So Deion Sanders has to be the corner representing the Vikings corner. Let me tell you about Dan Sanders. If he was wherever he he didn't let you catch the ball, when he was a scout corner, when he was his corner, and that permeated through that football team. And and Jesse Tuggle uh, was an undersized guy that nobody wanted, and they all thought he couldn't play, and he became the best linebacker in football. So, a a great fun group, and uh, uh, we we would go out and beat the Raiders. And Robert Lows would say, well, "If we beat these Raiders, uh, my family's bringing ghetto cake. Our, our 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 team would go crazy. We'd all eat ghetto cake on the bus going to the air, going to the airplane. Ghetto cake is about seventy percent butter. So uh, <laughs> we, we had a lot of fun,
0: Coach. One one question I gotta know: You changed the uniforms. And I gotta say, I gotta have a confessional here. I actually like the red and black uniforms. I remember him as a kid. Oh no! I, I remember him as a kid. I see the throwback Sundays now. But you come in, and, and it's it's a moment. It's an anecdote that comes through in the film. You went to the All Blacks. Tell us why you did that.
7: Black's not a color. Black is an attitude. And Atlanta's been playing without any attitude. Uh, Atlanta's just been just been out there. And I thought that uh, we we had to come forth. We didn't have any swag. We uh, we didn't have any any uh, step in our giddyup. But we, we we were just there, and we broke the. net. I got on my my uh, my owner was uh, Rankin Smith, and he did it uh, because you're not allowed to change colors till you give the league a uh, year notice, year plus notice, so they can sell all the garbage, uh, all that red ugly stuff. Get rid of it. Uh, so every time we took the field in our black uniforms, we paid a fine because we had. And I and and I gotta say this for ranking he never he just paid the fine. And so every time we came out the tunnel, no, nobody knew we were fine because we didn't tell them in advance that we weren't going to wear those ugly stinking red helmets.
0: Well, that explains it. Black is not a color; it's an attitude.
7: It's an attitude, and, and we became the team of attitudes.
0: How much was
1: the we fine had back the then? Attitude. How much was the fine back then? When when for 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 the uniform, I can't even imagine that happening today with the process that go, that teams go through to change their uniforms.
7: Uh, well, I, thank gosh, Rankin didn't tell me he didn't make me pay for it. <laughs> um, and and I, adv- I and he, he goes, "Jerry, we got to pay a fine for this." I think I shocked him. I said, "Whatever well, the fine is, take it off my pay." I should have asked what it was, but he was a good man. He, thank God, he did not take it off my pay, and uh, uh, we went on and, and violated all the rules. Uh, and And the defense, uh, and the defense played with that attitude. They had that attitude that uh, uh, you, you know, Ricky Bryant was a defensive tackle. Nobody played harder. Tim Green, nobody played harder. We weren't the best team. We were the hardest working, most fun team.
0: Coach, there's there's one guy in the show that, by his own admission, was not the hardest worker on that team, uh, Brett Favre. You mentioned him uh, earlier, and, and and he tells the stories about how he basically wasn't a professional yet, and and we all know the history. He ends up getting traded. I'm just curious, as a coach, who is you're essentially a teacher. You have these students out in the field. As his career unfolded, did it give you satisfaction? Do you root for a guy like that, even though he wasn't he wasn't ready to be in the NFL? Maybe. Um, from a professional standpoint, when you had him, when he goes on and, and reaches those heights, and you're seeing it from a distance, how do you respond to that?
7: I was his biggest fan. Uh, even when he first went to Green Bay, Mariucci was the quarterback coach. Called me, he was, "What did you send us? Holy cow, this guy! This guy's unbelievable!" I said, "Stay with him. He's got the ability." Everybody on our team knew he had the ability. It's, and you talk about having fun when we went on the road. Let's say we're at the L.A. Rams. We're gonna play the Rams, or whoever they were. They were uh, him and a guy named Billy Joe Tolliver. we done. Pra- we're, we always practiced on the on the field that we're gonna play on the road. They would all the whole team would bet, and they'd line up. Those two cats could could be on our side. Throw the ball into the press box, and they would stop off and buy footballs, woofle balls from Target and when we got practice over everybody would run over to the to the sideline where the where the press box was and they would throw that ball 80 yards with a whistle in it and you could hear a whistle and the team would bet on uh, you know Billy Joe went Billy Joe had an arm just like uh, just like Favre so Favre did play a lot that game but Favre was a, we had a lot of fun with Favre and we're all hoping Favre could play and it was kind of funny. Later on, when Favre became uh, uh, what he was, just the best quarterback playing, his mom and dad gave me a blank check, and they said, "Everything you did to try to help him grow up, I'm giving you this check, and you write in the amount for helping our son." I said, "Wow!" Now, of course, I never. Today, I'd probably need the check, but I didn't check. <laughs> And uh, that—that's how we—we we, we love Favre, and. I had a chance that he could go to the Jets or he could go to Green Bay. And if he went to the Jets at, what, at that, that age, today nobody would know who Favre is because the New York is just like Atlanta. It never closes; it's open all night. You you can you can party all night. Well, in Green Bay, the party the town's done at nine o'clock. The street lights are turned off. It's over. So he became a big success
0: coach what was so unique about the city of atlanta it's another thing that comes across in the film um both before 91 and the the history kind of was was going that direction and then during that season where it was such a community atmosphere that that people from all walks came together why was that city at that moment in time different than the other cities that maybe you guys traveled to and 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 played against
7: they've been bad for so long and and when we were there and when I was assistant there in the 70s we were good we had it going on but that 90 team I think when you're on your way from going from last to first it brings people together and I used to love to go out early because there would be three black faces with three white faces and there was nobody there was nobody that cared who was black and white they just loved their falcon. And I think that brought that city, and the city felt that, and they knew our players were that way. Uh, and Dion knew so many people. Uh, he knew uh, uh, MC Hammer. Dion says, "Can MC Hammer coach uh, uh, come on the sideline?" Well, I didn't know who MC Hammer was, but I love the guy. One time we're out playing somewhere, we're uh, uh, out in Arizona, and, and he said MC Hammer wants to talk to the team before we go play. I said, really? Let me tell you, what he said before the team was right, spot on. It was better than anything I would have said. It was great. Probably the toughest. One time we went on the air. That team got on the airplane, and we charter in Atlanta. And Evander Holyfield, the heavyweight champs, getting on the plane. And the people ran up and said, "Did you invite him?" I goes, "No. Who invited him? I don't know. But I'm not going to ask the champ to get off the plane." <laughs> and, and the and, uh, the heavyweight champ walks in on the airplane with us and goes to the game with us. <laughs> on the it. He, was, uh, he talked to the football team. He's such a great man and humble man. He, and he's going to talk to the team before we play. And he talked so soft. We were all leaning in. I don't think anybody heard anything he said. And I finally said, all right. And we all screamed and got left but he talked so soft. He's such a humble guy. Such a... And he says, I want to tell you, I was like, it was like the godfather. Uh, I, we couldn't hear what he was saying, but it didn't matter. His heart loved that team and the team loved him. And that's what happened in 91 Atlanta to this day. Uh, I go back to Atlanta. I'm still their coach. People think I'm their coach because not, it was the team bringing the city together.
0: That's awesome. Mate. Um, other—it's funny hearing you tell those stories and and seeing the clips and just thinking, how many other coaches would would just say, "Wow, what a distraction! What is this boxer doing here? What is what is MC Hammer? What's Travis Tritt doing here? Like, get him off our field! You know, we gotta we gotta practice goal line. Get him out of here." But but obviously, uh, you you had a different outlook on the whole thing.
7: And one day in practice, James Brown, the Godfather of Soul, shows up. I mean, this is why you talk about why did this city gravitate towards this team? Why has this team never been forgotten? We're in practice and James Brown wants to be a tailback and run a sweep. <laughs> well, he's only you know he's he's a he, he's only like five feet tall. We put him in the tailback in the eye, toss him. He runs around the corner. The team goes wild. <laughs> but I tell everybody, don't hit him now. Don't hit him. <laughs> That's great. And there was James James Brown only ran a toss sweep in his leg. By the way, he ran to the left. Ran a ran a toss sweep in Atlanta Falcon practice on I mean, That that's the kind of fun we had. And then we'd go back to work.
1: Hey coach, thank you so much for taking a few minutes. I hope it helps you. Uh terrific. We love talking to you. You know that. We love hearing from you. We love when you're part of our films. Uh, and uh, we'll talk to you again uh, pretty soon, we hope.
7: Thank you, my
0: friends. All right. Take care. Take, Take care, bye. Jerry. Well, Paul, nice conversation with the coach. It's great, guys like Jerry Glanville. We can't tell football stories without people like Jerry Glanville because of the duration of his career, the players he's had, where he's been, the games he's coached in, the footage that he's given us. If everybody knows, everybody knows the bite. Not for long. Not for long. Keep making those calls. So, uh, yeah, it's great talking to him and and reflecting. I I, I couldn't, when he was talking about that, uh, when he was talking about running into people who remember that team, um, it's awesome to hear that and to know that this film that Greg and Anthony and Rob put together is going to help people who don't know anything about that team learn, learn a lot about them, because uh, it's certainly one that not everybody remembers. People who are young don't know it at all, but it's a team that's definitely worth uh, looking back on. Yeah, it's a fun hour,
1: and uh, hopefully everybody enjoys it. Thanks for joining us today on the uh, NFL Films podcast.: I'd like to thank our friends. Greg Pacetti, Anthony Smith in L.A., Rob Gehring,
0: Coach Jerry Glanville. Thanks to our engineer, Steve Mosley, our producer, Rich Owens. Find us
1: at NFL Films on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We're out there making football movies for you. Every day of the week. Till next time, I'm Keith. I'm Paul. Later.